It's September 15th, 2019, and this is episode 412 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, on today's episode, we're jumping into a mostly unedited live show, which we recorded on stage in Aurora, Colorado during the blockchain training conference a few weeks ago. Big thanks to Purse.io for sponsoring today's episode of the show. Then after the break, we go boldly towards a conversation about the intersection, if there is one, of cryptocurrency and Star Trek money, with an onstage conversation between Jonathan Mohan and Davi Barker, moderated by our own Stephanie Murphy. Enjoy the show. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we are live on stage from the Blockchain Training Conference in beautiful Aurora, Colorado. Say hi, everybody. (laughs) Thank you. All right, joining me on the stage today, Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, and Jonathan Mohan. Thanks to all the hosts and to all you, the listeners, and to you, the audience, for being here today. It's always fun when we get to do this. You know, it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to talk about, because when we get these live audiences, it's kind of always a question. So I'm kind of curious. I'd like to get a show of hands. How many people here are regular listeners to the Let's Talk Bitcoin show? Okay, so we've got a decent amount, about half the crowd. Cool, so, um, so we talk a lot about kind of technology and very specifics. And today I wanted to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about the concept of disruption as a whole. Uh, because there are really interesting things that you don't really get into until you start working through the problem. There's a lot of stuff where people come into cryptocurrency and like the first 18 months you're in, there's all the same questions and all the same ideas that everybody has. And then at the end of that point, you figure out, actually, I, I misunderstood this fundamentally. We call this going down the rabbit hole. So disruption is kind of one of those topics where it seems like it's a no-brainer, but actually there's more complexity to it perhaps than we imagine. So kind of to kick things off, what I'd like to start with, um, <laughs> well, what do, you, what do you guys want to do? We could start with either going down the line and kind of talking about our favorite examples of opportunities for, uh, for this, or I could lay out kind of a... Uh, a more complex thesis, so we can go from there. Do the thesis. I want to hear about the rules of disruption. Okay, sure, we'll do that. All right, so a couple of years ago, I guess at this point about five years ago, I, uh, I was moderating a talk, uh, and a guy named uh, David Johnston was on, that, uh, was on that talk. He was an early investor in the MasterCoin, a number of other projects, BitAngels, things like that, a uh, factum. Um, and, uh, and he said something that he <laughs> coined as Johnston's Law which basically said that anything that can be decentralized will be decentralized. And that's uh, one of those aphorisms, right, that like, kind of sounds right, but as time went on and as the months passed after I had, I had heard that and as I kind of internalized it and tried to understand it, I came to believe that perhaps there was an addendum to it, which is that anything disruptive that can be stopped will be stopped because there's almost always a good reason for the status quo, be it a company, be it a government, whatever it is, to stop some sort of disruptive technology, since disruption naturally comes at the expense of whoever is currently being disrupted. <laughs> so um, that's kind of uh, my broad definitional look. Stephanie, what do you think of that? I like it. I mean, I, I thought the law was actually anything that can be disrupted will be disrupted. You said decentralized. Well, what is it? So I think that it was... That's different. Well, but it's not really different. It's not, uh, it's not really different, because decentralization if you look at it really in any of the contexts in which we see systems that need to be decentralized is disruption by definition. It's either enabling something that's impossible, which is very much a change to the status quo, 
or it's enabling something that people don't want, right? Uh, at least the, the kind of powers that be don't want. And so because of that, there's sort of inherent, that inherent incentive. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, so one of my kind of favorite use cases in the traditional space that I think will eventually become a fully decentralized use case is the case of Uber, so ride sharing, for example. Right now, Uber is this sort of monumental company, and there are other things that want to be Uber out there, but they're all these monumental companies where the company does the app, finds the customers, markets the product, hires the drivers as subcontractors, basically. Um, and, and so because of that, you have all of these little pools of, of functionality out there that don't talk to each other because there's a competitive disadvantage if they were to talk to each other because Uber might lose, lose users to another service that's using you know, Uber as its kind of uh, carrier layer. So the thing of it is, though, is that when a company like Uber comes in and disrupts, they're dealing with essentially a, um, they're dealing with a fragmented market. So if you think about the case of Uber trying to disrupt the regional taxi monopolies, and you compare that against something like the early days with Napster, and where the record companies were going after individuals, these are national or international companies, Uber has kind of the opposite situation. They got to choose their battles, but as time goes on and as you get bigger, you lose the ability to do that. And another example, of course, here is Airbnb. Um, Airbnb has the same problem. They started off as this wildly disruptive thing, but as they got bigger, it became impossible to avoid the controls that took away a lot of the advantages that previously had been there for using the service, in large part because it allowed you to ignore the rules. Um, so those are examples of things that started off centralized because you couldn't do it in a decentralized way when nobody understands that there's actually a desire for this service. But the further and deeper you move into this process, the more resistance these companies come up against. And so it seems inevitable to me, and has for a while, that we'll see a situation where an Uber simply can't exist because as a centralized company, it presents too valuable a target and too easy a target to go after. And so that's where you... So are you saying that like first Uber or Airbnb was the disruptor and then now they're moving into becoming the disrupted? Well, and it's or what we see with Libra too, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the cycle we see with disruption always. I think one of the interesting things is that when you look at these markets, um, they eventually get locked in into a parallel distribution. So um, the, the top three companies control 80, 90% of the market because as they consolidate gains, uh, capture the regulators, become well entrenched, et cetera, et cetera, they gradually uh, try to build stronger monopolistic practices to keep out uh, any other competition. Mm -hmm. The only way to compete at that point is to change the market itself with disruption, right? So uh, think, for example, when you had um, Kodak, Fuji, Nikon, uh, et cetera, with the camera manufacturers, right? Three, three four companies, 80%, 90% of the market. Well, the only way they could get broken into in that market is by a company that wasn't a camera manufacturer at all. And they got destroyed by Nokia putting cameras on phones. Mm -hmm. And they never expected that to happen, came out of left field, the entire well-controlled, nicely settled, perfect monopoly system they've built falls apart overnight. So eventually what's going to happen is, I think, is similar. So we might end up 10 years from now and uh, uh, Uber and Lyft are you know, the two biggest players, or maybe there's a couple of others. And... Um, they treat drivers like shit. Oh wait, they're already doing that. They um, 
behave inappropriately and monopolistically. Oh wait, they're already doing that too. Um, okay, but you see where I'm going. And then the, there's no way to dislodge them unless you change the playing field itself because they've rigged it in their advantage. Mm -hmm. So disruption is about breaking the mold of what the market is supposed to be, how the market is supposed to operate, and shaking loose all of the established rules. And it's the only way to inject competition into a market that's locked up. So you're saying like Uber could be disrupted by maybe like teleportation or something? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's going to be disrupted by perhaps a more decentralized alternative, uh, perhaps uh, an, an application that aggregates information across services. Who knows? Well, so mean. this is the thing, though, is that we've already seen these manifest in real life. We've already seen these decentralized ride-sharing protocols happen. There were several that happened in 2014, 2015. Lazoos out of Israel, and then there was... Right. There have been a number of them, but that's what I'm saying is I don't think it's possible it's for not. that type of a system to catch on. I think that you have to have failures. At the, I think that in order for a system that is decentralized to truly disrupt, it has to present an option that is both unstoppable and which can't be avoided because there's no other way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer there is they get disrupted by Tesla. Not a ride-sharing, not a driver-sharing company at all, but simply a fleet of autonomous vehicles that you can just hail. At that point, all of the established parameters that have given these two or three companies a monopoly situation, which is primarily relationships with drivers, relationships with car leasing companies, car insurance companies, and car financing companies, all of those things disappear overnight because it's now a software game on software cars. So I'm going to push back on you on that for a little bit because... Well, you can't. I'm yeah. too far away for you to reach. <laughs> the, um, so you look at Uber, right? You look at any of these companies, but Uber particularly. Uber does not make money. I hate them. Right. Like Uber does not make money. And it's really very much a question if past the current sort of financial conditions that we're in, a company like that will survive. And that is sort of my point is that as they get bigger, they become a more important target for the people who they're disrupting to go after. And eventually, and again, the people who they're disrupting are all of these local taxi monopolies, which means governments. Well, I think one of the other uh, really important dynamics that is playing out especially in that example you gave Uber, but also more broadly into the marketplace in the United States, is the radical financialization of business. Uber is not a car company, it's not a taxi company, it's not a ride-sharing company. Uber is a leveraged capital financialization company that happens to have a fleet of cars. They're a leveraged debt company. Right. And that's why their biggest partners are companies like Goldman Sachs, and those are their biggest clients as well. You can't change the way Uber behaves because you can't give them a 0% interest loan in the order of $200 billion so they can float for another six months. Whoever can, that's their owner. And, and so financialization in that industry, financialization in the airlines, like airlines today are not uh, airlines anymore. Uh, Delta is American Express, uh, United is uh, JP Morgan Chase, and American is Citibank. How do I know that? Because if you get one of those cards, you can get status faster than putting your ass in a seat and actually flying. Uh, they're credit card companies that happen to have 
uh, winged vehicles. Well, right? I was again at, they financialization. They don't even have winged vehicles. That's actually the interesting. They part. don't even own the winged vehicles. I know. Anymore. I was talking they with somebody who were, That's right. They don't even get them financed. They lease them. They lease them from companies that buy them and hold them and then take that as a as a that cash have flow. the fleet. Exactly. Right? So it's it's a very interesting world that we've gone into. And I was just reading about um, a variety of fast food total collateralization backed bonds. That are that are being issued. Uh, so, anyways, you're right on the financial. Right, McDonald's is a real estate company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The the bottom line is that when you have to compete against various industries where the primary means of competition is developing a better product, manufacturing a better widget, improving productivity of workers, that's difficult to do. If instead your primary invention is to find an even bigger pipe of capital and stick a parasitic straw in it and suck a small margin out of that flow of money, which is the essence of financialization, especially when you have zero percent money, that industry will bury every every other form of competition until everything is a bank everything is an overleveraged debt instrument and what's happening uh, in the united states i think what we're seeing is that modern capitalism has turned into a kleptocratic system of leveraged debt and none of these companies make products or serve customers they serve bankers and they make governments when we talk about disruption in the next couple of years Something that I'm scared about is how much of the values of Bitcoin will succeed past its mainstream adoption. You know, because you look at the internet and all the battles that were won there, and we have the most Orwellian KGB police state we ever could have had because of the internet. So it's like, what values do we get, and what wars do we catastrophically lose? Mm -hmm. And when we talk about disruptions to even Bitcoin itself, we we're now in the age of collateralized lending in Bitcoin and in Ethereum. You know, there's there's Salt, there's Maker, there's all these guys, and you know, will the financialization and over leveraging come to Bitcoin, and then we end up in the same way that we have all these great things that the internet did, but we have this totalitarian police state, in the worst possible credit <laughs> beast that we've ever had, specifically because of it. No. <laughs> and there's a very simple reason why not. The underpinning factor in the financialization of markets is abnormally cheap money that leads to leveraged debt. If you don't have abnormally cheap money, and Bitcoin is not cheap money, it's the most expensive kind of money we have. I mean, every ICO out there was the cheapest it, money you could have gotten. They got their basis were zero. If you were an ICO advisor, you got it at one penny, and it's right it because we're in the period of moving fiat into it, and there's lots of fiat floating around, slushing around, and effectively inflating even the Bitcoin. Well, what's or the difference? Bubble. What's the difference between getting you know, dollars? Money. What's the, the difference? But what's the difference between getting dollars at zero percent interest that you then loan at, at loan at three percent, and getting an ICO token at ninety percent lower than what everyone else gets it in? That's the same model, just in a different structure. Yeah, but it won't happen on Bitcoin at least mm -hmm. because of the monetary policy. No one is going to lend you Bitcoin at zero percent. Yeah, and I think they that can't because it's a deflationary currency. That's an insane business model. And, and if you don't have cheap money, you can't do that kind of financialization. And, and as we get to collateralization and leverage in crypto, to the extent that Bitcoin does achieve that how much is the next 10x going to be using bitcoin the next 10x of adoption like like i'm saying the worst case scenario is bitcoin ends up you know maintaining those values but the industry has the next 10x wave move past it and and, and what ends up happening is in the same way that you're saying hey pgp didn't give up on security well no one uses it yeah, you know, I'm I'm not particularly worried about uh, Bitcoin losing its opportunity at mainstream adoption because it doesn't get adopted by bankers. 
Uh, and I think one of the big problems in this industry is that we keep seeing that our great hope is that finally the bankers will recognize how great crypto is and they'll invest in us. Right? And the thing is, I don't want to invest in them with my creativity, with my principles, with my interests. And I don't give a shit if they don't join the crypto revolution. In fact, I, I hope that my prediction that crypto is a poison pill that they can't swallow without choking uh, proves to be correct. So the idea of institutional investors coming in to make crypto mainstream is bullshit, because everything they have ever touched turns to shit. It's the reverse Midas touch, right? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I, I think too aggressive? No, no, no. I, I <laughs> think good. the scenario is even more pessimistic than that. <laughs> I mean, if you looked at the you know the the early eighties and you said that what the KGP was doing, good God, I wish Facebook was con constrained to what the KGB could have done in the eighties. <laughs> like yeah. you look at what Maker's doing right now and we think payday lending is predatory. My God, Maker's just one bad week away from being your own loan shark. There's no limits there. Like, Ether goes to $20 because some asshole on BitMEX destroys the economy for five seconds through some 100x leverage, and Ethereum goes to $20, and then everyone in Maker decides, well, the peg needs to be the peg, so guess what? You all have 900% interest rate on your CDP. Uh, nothing stops them from doing that. And then we're only going to wish we had the KGB no, in the 80s. Nothing, Good God, I would take the KGB over Facebook. No, nothing should stop them from doing that. Because if you actually do have a collapse of Ether to that price, then 900% is the correct interest rate in that market. Do I don't have, see but, but, but the scenario we get is worse than the one we replace it with. That's like saying payday lending is a great product for people who can't manage their own finances. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, if you want stable interest rates by disabling market trading on interest rates, then you'll get stable interest rates, but they won't be real. I, I like freedom, but freedom is danger. And I'm not saying danger is bad, because freedom is good, and I prefer freedom over danger uh, in terms of things you give up and you get. But that doesn't mean that Facebook isn't more totalitarian than the KGB. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that what we end up with is not going to be worse than the investment bankers we try to replace them with. No, absolutely not. I think we're going to have all extreme behaviors expressed in these systems. Meaning that if you have a system of money that expresses a societal tool for allocating resources, it's going to express every aspect of behavior in a human society. That means it's going to have the good, the bad, and the ugly all incorporated. I don't see why people think that if we suddenly switch our money to Bitcoin, human behavior is going to change dramatically. Now, there are some people, especially maximalists, who believe that if you change time preference, everything changes, and everyone will suddenly grow beards, eat meat, stock AR-15s, <laughs> and live in a libertarian paradise of Bitcoin sound money. But I don't think human nature changes like that. So of course we're going to have predatory lending. Of course we're going to have kleptocratic capitalists. We're going to have as well drug dealers and criminals and organized crime and decentralized autonomous terroristic organizations, but also decentralized autonomous altruistic charities and everything in between. Money is a tool. Society is running this system and it will represent all aspects of society. Guys, we're getting some awesome questions from the audience. Do you want to jump into them? All right, so first one is going back to our starting discussion about decentralization. Is there anything that is truly, uh, 
Hell, I lost the question now. <laughs> is there, here we go. Is there anything that truly cannot be decentralized or disrupted? Or is everything ultimately vulnerable? I don't think decentralization is a panacea. And the idea that decentralization is the answer to every problem is completely incorrect. Decentralize all the things is a great slogan, but the bottom line is that all the things don't need to be decentralized. Decentralization is a really powerful tool in the case where centralization has led to market failure, uh, market consolidation and control, uh, a collapse in societal norms or behaviors in a group, and adverse game-theoretical outcomes that are hurting everyone. In that case, bring on some decentralization. But there's no need to do that in many, many cases. And the other there thing is... There are inefficiencies of decentralization, too. There are Absolutely. huge inefficiencies of decentralization. The same thing applies for disruption. I hate it when I hear these corporate presentations and the like, we're going to disrupt the market. In fact, we're going to disrupt ourselves from the inside out by introducing innovative groups with agile programming and sprints. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Disruption is not fun. If you're in a business that is being disrupted, you're going to be going through rounds of layoffs and terrifying situations where products are getting cut, divisions are getting reorganized, you're cannibalizing your successes in order to try to do a Hail Mary save to survive in a very hostile market. That's what disruption feels like for startups, for a business. For Both disruption and decentralization can be very ugly. So it's not always desirable to have those. I would argue, in fact, that it's actually a last resort in basically every situation where it's correctly applied. Yes, exactly. Right. It's it's like the explosives solution. Right, exactly. To uh, to redecorating your living room. Which brings it's us like back okay, to if money. your living room has gone that far that you need to blow it up, that might be a good redecorating solution. Right. I'm thinking about it. My living room's pretty far gone. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, you were saying like things get disrupted when the disruption is unstoppable. I just think they get disrupted when the disruptive thing is better. I think that's the most important yeah. thing, that the disruptive thing is better. Because like you said, Andreas, there's a, a lot of volatility and uncertainty in transition. And um, you know, when you brought up this topic, Adam, earlier today when we were doing a pre-show meeting, I was thinking about like a completely different angle, like personal disruption questioning your beliefs, you know, maybe yep. like limiting beliefs or things that are holding you back. This is a painful process and most people resist it or most people just never do it in the first place because it's difficult and it's it it feels like a shakeup just like you were saying on the corporate level, on a personal level when you're disrupting your own beliefs, it feels just like that. But people do it because the outcome is better than what it was before. So the most important thing is that it's it's better. Well, yeah, you're throwing out the, the state of equilibrium and replacing it with a state of temporary chaos, hoping that when the chaos settles, the outcome, uh, the new equilibrium is better than the previous one. Let me give you an example. Right now, democratic institutions in this country are being disrupted by radicalized political positions, including fascism, in this country, right? So that is a disruptive force. Our democratic institutions are being disrupted, and very Often in history, we have these moments when disruption is a terrible thing, and it happens through a series of unfortunate coincidences that lead a society to lose equilibrium. That's a disruptive event. Now, you'll hear a lot of political opinions that say the only way we can solve our institutions or save our institutions is with revolution 
or uh, armed resistance, or a, a huge economic catastrophe that will then lead to Bitcoin going to the moon, and finally, you know, our political party will prevail. That kind of catastrophic fetishization of disruption is actually what's happening in society today, and that disruption is very ugly. And maybe it would be better if we had better equilibrium in our institutions rather than trying to throw them all away. Well, I don't think we're going to go down too far of a political rabbit hole here. Um, Jonathan? <laughs> okay, we got another question. This is a really cool question. Yeah, currently winning our popularity poll. And by the way, go to slido.com and check the Let's Talk Bitcoin live room. Vote yes. now. This is a rare moment of democracy for Let's Talk Bitcoin. <laughs> you, usually it's a Levinite dictatorship. In addition to the Lightning Network, what are some other second-layer efforts being worked on for Bitcoin? I'm curious about this, and I don't know the answer. So, uh, the most immediate thing that comes to mind is a while back we had on someone from Microsoft that is doing something that like breaks my brain a little bit. But Microsoft has been working on uh, an identity solution built on top of Bitcoin. Um, and it's not crazy. It's not disruptive. If you talk to anyone from the web credentials group or the, the people who are interested in decentralized identity, they'll tell you a thousand ways why it's broken and wrong. But the thing that I love is, as we were saying, like there's what you think that is perfect, and there's what will get adopted and move the needle forward. And what Microsoft is doing right now on top of Bitcoin, making an identity layer on top of it, is really freaking cool. And the idea that a year from now, you can OAuth with Bitcoin to log into Windows is kind of mind-blowing. That was uh, Daniel Buckner, uh, our guest who came on. Uh, you can watch that episode, of yeah, course. So the repo's open now. They're very desperate for anyone who'd like to contribute. <laughs> yeah, it's an open source project for Microsoft, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah, it's all open source, built on top of Bitcoin. So other than Lightning, I think um, th there isn't really a second layer payment solution that's an alternative to Lightning specifically for Bitcoin. There are others in other areas, for example, uh, Raiden, Plasma in Ethereum. There are some overlay networks like Cosmos that are multi-blockchain that do stuff like that that I recently found out about. I don't know much about it, that. Um, and there's various... Um, integration networks and interledger technologies being developed, but not specifically for Bitcoin. I, I have an answer for this one, too. Um, yeah, so the other thing, uh, we think of Lightning as like the first L2 on top of Bitcoin, but the reality is it's actually not. Um, the reality is, is that we've had MetaToken protocols, several of them on the Bitcoin protocol, whether you're talking about colored coins. You can kind of differentiate and say that that's different. It's a different kind of L2 than the Lightning Network. But ultimately, it is an L2 built on top of Bitcoin. So we have three different token systems. And I mean, I can't even count how many proof of uh, existence systems have been built using Bitcoin as kind of the primary layer of truth. I would consider all of those L2 systems. Do you? Um, possibly. I, I would think of those more as applications. But then again, that makes it an application layer. So yeah. again, yeah, it's very difficult to really put these in a conceptual mold. Well, that's actually something together. I was talking about today as well, is that like, it's kind of controversial to think about coins as tokens, right? But the reality is, is that all of the L1 tokens that are out there, like Bitcoin and Ether and things like that, they really are tokens. They're just tokens that are slightly different in that they're built into the protocol and that they, um, and that they really constitute money in that kind of system or are accredited. I'm really Let's make some new words. Toins? Toys? Tokens? Tokens? Tokens. Tokens. Or toys. Well, I like L1 tokens and L2 tokens. Meta tokens and native tokens. That's how I kind of think about I'm, it. I'm most excited okay. for uh, a year from now when atomic cross-chain swaps happen 
and we get into the taxonomy arguments between protocols about which one's the layer one and which one's the layer two, because any robust argument between a bunch of dudes arguing about who's the top and who's the bottom <laughs> is something I can't stop laughing over. All right, do we want to take another question or shall I move? Want to go down that? <laughs> um, we have one question. And you didn't want to go down a political rabbit hole. We're trying not to go down any Serve rabbit holes. Serve you Gotta right. Keep it moving. Karma. Keep it moving. <laughs> Well, we are actually coming up on uh, the end of our first segment here, so oh, maybe are we? we should well, break then, for a little bit. And well, then, then hang on. Then let me let me do this real quick. All right. So there, I did an interview yesterday with a gentleman who previously worked with the, until very recently worked with the, who until very recently worked with the uh, Central Bank of Curacao, um, and who was talking to me about sort of the the interest and excitement within that space to ease the friction of uh, essentially a lot of the Caribbean islands have small uh, sort of interrelated central banks. Um, and there's a, a big problem where they are transferring funds or making purchases from one island to another and they have to convert it to US dollars first. But if they, uh, and so the thought is, is that they're going to burn 10% of their currency, their real currency, and issue it as a digital token and then essentially back it with the central bank and stuff like that. And the, the kind of area that I take on this is that's not disruption. That's optimization. But it's optimization that can lead to disruption. And it's optimization that can make people comfortable with disruption. And I kind of wanted to talk about that is what do you guys think about is it possible to really package disruption as optimization to make it more palatable? I think more often what happens is optimization gets packaged as disruption. Sure. It's great marketing. It's like, what are you doing? We're changing the world. It's going to be amazing. Uh, so what are you actually doing? Well, we moved the widget three pixels to the left. <laughs> Revolutionary. So We've disrupted graphics. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a new era. When it comes to big guys doing things, I very rarely believe they're going to disrupt things on the merit of the technology. But And I keep referencing it. There's this fantastic book called Crossing uh, the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. So there's sort of a seminal book it's a classic. on technology and how adoption occurs. And he schematizes the five groups that we all know now, which is innovator, early adopter, early majority, late majority, and laggard. And he breaks them down into two fundamental value groups. One is uh, where the value they get from it is and where is where they perceive the authority on the, the technology to be from. And innovators and early adopters are the same in that the way that they perceive authority is they evaluate the merit of the thing in and of itself. They have slightly different values, but the giant chasm between early majority and early adopter is they shift from having both different values but also different frames of authority. So an early adopter will review the code repo and say, hey, that's a good thing, that's a good product, I understand this space, that's a good technology. The early majority will say, well, what does the Secretary of State say? What does the, the people in traditional power say about this? And irrespective of the merits of the product, even if I think it could have value, they're my authority figure, and I don't care about the inherent merit of the technology, I'm not gonna touch it, I'm not gonna use it. And that's sort of the problem with the chasm is that there's a two shift in value uh, between uh, early majority and innovator versus the rest. And what I like about Facebook and these governments and all these people saying, and JP Morgan saying they're doing a blockchain that has nothing to do with blockchain, is at the very least we're winning the authority signaling to the early majority about real products. And that when they say, oh, well, it can't be that bad, the government of Curacao is doing it. Oh, JP Morgan's doing it. Okay, well, I guess this Bitcoin thing that actually has value to me it, that I was kind of scared of is now something I can play in and I can explore. We can create a slippery slope. So you like Libra? Let me tell you about Ripple. Oh, you like Ripple? Let me tell you about Bitcoin. I, I would say that, you know, 
I think that there are a lot of people who trade Ripple that have, so, the, so one of my favorite things is uh, Coindesk puts out this report where they take the top 20 market cap coins and they interview a couple hundred people to see where in the political spectrum they are. So they put at this report and they say, where are the furthest left people in blockchain? And it's Ethereum. And they say, uh, where, it, where are the furthest right uh, uh, people? And it's Monero. Um, the most conservative is uh, Dash. Uh, and uh, sorry, the, the most anarchistic is Monero. The most conservative is Dash, um, and the most entirely moderate with no value alignment is Ripple. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was the most beautiful analysis of the blockchain space that I ever read. And uh, I think Ripple's great because it's people who never would have cared, never would have touched this space, that are now at least conceptually thinking about this space as something that they would touch. And they are sort of the late majority that don't care at all about anything blockchain. At least they're, they're in the ecosystem. I, I'd love to come up with some slogans or taglines for each of the coins based on that analysis. <laughs> so it would be Ripple, are we rich yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, one of my favorite moments is I was in New York City and I saw a billboard for a milk product called Ripple. Apparently there's milk called Ripple. Oh, it's pea milk. And when I saw that, I said, Jesus, when people said Ripple was misrepresenting themselves, I had no idea it got this bad. <laughs> hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for another sponsored minute. Hey Matt. Hey Adam. So Matt, Purse is a for-profit company, really a startup, but from our conversations, it sounds like you guys spend a lot of time and resources developing stuff that's free and open source. Yeah, it's true. Purse makes a direct profit from its Bitcoin Amazon exchange platform, but there's something even more valuable to us than just selling a service, Bitcoin itself. Everyone at Purse is a longtime holder of Bitcoin, our founders, our investors, and our developers. So we all benefit when the price goes up, regardless of how the Purse application is performing. To that end, we employ a team of open source developers that work full-time on creating secure, easy-to-use tools for interacting with Bitcoin. As community manager for Bitcoin, I can tell you I've heard from developers around the world who are integrating the Bitcoin library into their projects. I work with one developer who recently left Venezuela, and he's building a wallet system to help his family and friends back home deal with their financial situations. If we can help spread Bitcoin adoption around the world, we all benefit. To start saving today, visit purse.io. And for more information about Bitcoin, visit bcoin.io or just look it up on GitHub. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. All right, all right, all right, guys. We're going to have to call this segment to a close. Andreas and I are going to step off stage and we'll hand the mic to Stephanie. Thank you. Yes, we're going to be talking about from real world money to uh, the Star Trek money of the fictional universe. So we'd like to bring up Davi Barker here. Davi presented at the conference. He's a guest on our show. Uh, Davi, have you been on Let's Talk Bitcoin before? Uh, I think I must have somewhere along the way. I was. I was. I feel yeah. like you were too at some point. Davi so. goes way back in Bitcoin. He started one of the first uh, social movements with Bitcoin, which is called Bitcoin Not Bombs where he said, hey guys, if we're all about the poor and social disruption, why don't we help them out? And said, why don't I actually start selling some t-shirts and sweatshirts to people who get cold? Sorry, sell you sweatshirts and we'll give the poor <laughs> sweatshirts for free, yeah, excuse yeah. me. Yeah, Hoodie the Homeless. Yeah, yeah Hoodie yeah. the Homeless we did for two years. And the idea was if you bought a Bitcoin Not Bombs t-shirt during one of those campaigns, it was priced in such a way that it also gave a hoodie to homeless people on one of our distribution days. 
And then the other part of that was outreach to the homeless community to say, hey, if you squirrel away some Bitcoin now, I mean, at some point, maybe down the future, hopefully. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so there, there, were, uh, there were probably a couple hundred homeless people that had a hoodie that in the back had 20 statements about Bitcoin. On the yeah, back. It, was, it was 350 or oh, 365, nice. something like that. So yeah. I, I have a half Bitcoin hoodie thanks to this man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Okay, well, uh, we're going to talk about Star Trek and Star Wars and cryptocurrencies. Uh, I just want to warm you guys up with one question that was meant for the whole team, and we'll come back to it. But uh, our most popular question right now is, what can regular users of Bitcoin do to help the many people in the U.S. and around the world who remain unbanked? Do you guys have opinions about that? I'm sure you do. Well, it's sort of the perfect tool for that. That was sort of what the homeless outreach was about, was because the majority of homeless people are unbanked. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how, I don't understand the question. The question is use, no, a bi use Bitcoin, <laughs> use a cryptocurrency. Uh, use more it to do than projects like, like Davi did. Yeah, well, I, you know, everyone talks about Venezuela and uh, I, I know of a friend of mine who um, actually subcontracts a couple of hours of work each month to a Venezuelan and is able to pay them like 50 bucks for the whole scope of work in Bitcoin. And because of the uh, exchange rate, it ends up being like 75 or $100 equivalent. Uh, which constitutes a doubling of that person's monthly income for that one day of work each month, which blew my mind. And just like genuinely, there are times when I think a lot of the things we say are just what we say to promote this thing. And like that blew my mind as to like the actual power for crypto to really change someone's life. That like think of something so trivial, it's illegal in the United States to pay a 19-year-old to do it because it, you'd only pay $4 an hour to do it and then just make that scope of work and then find a friend who knows someone in Venezuela and say, I'll pay you 50 bucks if you do this for 10 hours and it'll double their monthly income. That blew my mind. Sure. Blew my mind. Well, if you're living in the future on a starship, <laughs> you're not getting any monthly income because there's no money in Star Trek. Am I right about that? <laughs> or am I wrong? That was originally one of Gene Roddenberry's prescriptions for the universe was that, that it was a post-scarcity world and money didn't exist. We had evolved beyond the need for material wealth. Yes. We, 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 so in Star Trek, in the Federation, they've evolved past uh, money. However, they have these things of value that are scarce and finite in resource that there are time preferences on. Like, and if only there were like, ways to describe like that time preference. Like dilithium crystals. Okay. Or holosuite <laughs> time, because I know I yeah, would yeah. be really coveting that holosuite time. Yeah, the thing with the whole post-scarcity idea is that if you make, if you take a commodity that is currently being used in a basket of, of commodities to determine some sort of currency measurement, and you make that post-scarce, you get that commodity out of the scarcity math, something else becomes scarce, yeah. even if it's, if it's waiting in line at the replicator. Like, <laughs> Whatever's scarce, and there's a preference on time against it, yeah. and then you represent that preference on that ordering of, of the access to that, that then becomes the currency that you use. And it's sort of the interesting thing that I like about Bitcoin versus gold that I say it's, the, it's the, the, the money of the future is that it's the only commodity that we have that's backed by time, that it's, it's incremented by time. The unit of, of issuance is time. And the only thing that's scarce, regardless of any level of post-scarcity, will always be time. And that the, the, the idea that you can commoditize and create a sunk cost product around time, there's no level of efficiency you get that'll change time preference. It's also immune to gravity. It's going to be very difficult to bring gold and silver into space, and it's going to be very difficult to transport it from one galaxy to another. 
Whereas Bitcoin literally travels with the weight of a signal. Right. And so, yeah, you, you could absolutely create a credit system across vast distances in space. And as long as you are all part of some sort of communication network, that would work. Right. Now, there were some cultures in Star Trek that were depicted as engaging in trading, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so the classic one is always uh, gold-pressed latinum. It was used by the Ferengis because something about the element of latinum made it uh, so that you couldn't replicate it, and therefore it wasn't subject to the post-scarcity laws of Star Trek. And then they said, well, latinum is well, a liquid at room it, temperature. It isn't necessarily that it was unreplicable. It's just its basic economics, which was that the amount of inputs required on a cost basis level to get latinum hmm. was less than what you could get latinum if you were to mine it. And it was one of oh, the okay. only structures, elemental, stru like molecular structures, where the inputs were to, to take it out from a replicator just cost more than mining it. And okay. so it maintained this notion of irreplicability. Um, but in the same way that, like, gold, you can make gold. It's pretty trivial. It requires tens of thousands of dollars of electricity, and you can literally <laughs> turn lead into yeah, right. gold. Or you could spend $1,200 and buy an ounce. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, uh, but the other thing... Um the other thing with that is that it, it, dilithium crystals were not replicable. There was an episode of, T of TOS, the original series, where they go down to a planet, and the, that planet is not spacefaring, so it's a first contact problem, <laughs> but they are using dilithium crystals for jewelry. <laughs> and so it was, it was a classic precious metals problem. You have a primitive culture right. that's using this thing that is absolutely of industrial use to you over here in space. And so how do you trade with them? What do you have to offer them? One of my favorite things about the Ferengi is actually not uh, gold-pressed latinum, but their concept of the, the great material continuum. Right, yeah. Have you come across this one? Yeah, what, yeah. The you, great material continuum. Do you want to you feel that oh, one? Oh, it, it's just, it's, it's basically their idea that um, the market itself can always provide and that you can, um, like, it, it's the idea of just basically, it, it's the, the, the red paperclip phenomena. That, so there's a guy in the early aughts who bartered a red paper clip into a home over about five years. And he just showed you the idea of barter can lead to as much value generation as you possibly could want. And the Ferengi's idea of the great material continuum was that, you know, if you had the lobes for it, you could hear the river and you could listen to the flow and you could basically barter any outcome you wanted by taking the red paper clip principle out. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the, the entire cosmos consisted of places that didn't have enough of one thing but too much of another thing. And the role of the merchant was to find those flows of yeah. supply and demand and travel out into the galaxy to bring the things where there's too much over here and put it over there. I actually, um, <laughs> so we, we didn't decide to do the Star Trek topic until a little while ago, otherwise I would have genuinely done my show prep, which is remembering all my rules of acquisition. So <laughs> please forgive me for not knowing the number, but my absolute favorite rule of acquisition is to treat your customers like family. Exploit them. Yeah, right. <laughs> um... But uh, I don't know if we have any Star Trek-related topics. Yeah, do we have any Star Trek <laughs> questions? No, we're not getting Star Trek-related. We, well, we sprung this on Yeah, yeah. How does Bitcoin play into the future of Star Trek? Well, you know, I, I've heard of a couple of blockchain projects that say that they want to do basic income on their blockchain. Yeah, I've heard of that, too. And what about tokenizing time somehow? Sure, I mean, like the Ethica like Hour, Ethica a lot hours, of, of yeah. alternative currencies. I don't understand how you can credit time I, I mean debit time i know you can credit it because like so bitcoin is is proof that you've destroyed time i don't know how you can commoditize the delivery of time i know you can prove that time is gone yeah yeah but i don't know how you can future delivery time yeah, so it's like it's you can use time as a unit of measure you can't use it 
as a unit of account. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so this is the other thing about Bitcoin is time travel is going to produce some very strange things on the blockchain. Like if you remember, like Back to the Future, when when Martin when Doc goes back in time, he's got a briefcase of money from all different time periods, so he can spend money in all different time periods. The blockchain won't work that way. If you go back in time and try to spend the keys you have now, they won't work. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm thinking through what you're saying. So there was actually, in Star Trek, there's a, there's a whole division of Section 31 that has the temporal police, making yeah. sure people don't go back and alter the timeline. And the temporal any, prime directive. Right. Is there any analogy to that in like blockchain rollbacks? Like, don't do a rollback. Just don't do it. Well, you know, I, the other thing is that the Federation is a conglomeration of different cultures that they don't necessarily impose on. They just say once you're in the Federation, you have to act a certain way. Um, and I would think that of the totality of Star Trek, the binars have to love Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. I mean, just deep cut, uh, TNG. Um, but yeah, they're the episode on the binars who speak in binary. Um, yes. And they're twins, right? And they're twins, they yes. And yeah, they always come in pairs. Okay, so last question for you guys. What can Bitcoin learn from Star Trek? Oh, man. Um, so how to isolate, contain, and ignore socialists. <laughs> Davi? I don't know, man. What can, I mean, uh, it's a moral tale. There's, there's that. I mean, everything about Star Trek that you could learn from Star Trek is not economically sound. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hey, it's as economically sound as their understanding of maybe, physics. Maybe some things about marketing, maybe some things about branding, maybe some things about, uh, I don't know, the power of storytelling. Like, there's, there's generic lessons you can take from the, uh, the overarching arc of the success of Star Trek, but I don't know that they have anything to contribute I think, to. I think the most fundamental thing about Star Trek is that there are very, it's funny, even to this day, it was rare then and it's even rarer now, for some reason, it's very rare to get stories and mythologies that paint the idea that tomorrow is better than today and that our children will be better people than we are now. And I think that what Star Trek does that creates such a following around it is that it paints that tale, it paints that narrative, and it, it has this vision that what we're doing is going to matter. And everyone in Bitcoin that I know has that same fundamental belief that what we're doing is not only going to fix the world to make it better, but make better people, like make better structures that inform better people to act in better ways. And they genuinely believe that that's the next hundred years. And then it's this like, it's this, these seeds whose trees they'll never, uh, you know, who's, who's the, the seeds to trees whose shade they'll never sit in. And I think that if anything, they share that much in common. And so much so that I think that uh, it, both canons are a little delusional, but um, I think you, you got to love them for it. You know what I think Bitcoin could do to Star Trek? The, the best analogy I can think of is, again, time travel. Like when we talk about the, the prime timeline forking off of the Kelvin timeline or what it be, the Kelvin yes. forks, like you could, you could import all of the vocabulary that we use to describe a blockchain and turn that into a narrative device for a multiverse, for, for a forking upon forking upon forking of timelines in an existing universe. And as long as you spend enough time in the story teaching the viewer that language, it would be a it would be a huge, vast conceptual free space for time travel in a story that we don't do now. Right now, time travel stories are one or two timelines. But yeah. if you could get that idea of a blockchain into the mind of the viewer, you could get way bigger. Yeah. And, and, and just like Star Trek and Star Wars, uh, Craig Wright is the J.J. Abrams of of money because <laughs> he ruined Star Trek by forking it, and now he's about to ruin Star Wars by forking it. <laughs> 
So thank you, Cash. All right, right, we're done with our intermission. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's show is sponsored by Purse.io and featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode featured Jonathan Mohan, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Davi Barker, and Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see you next time.